Welcome to First Thought, a podcast by Galway International Arts Festival. I'm your host, Katrina Crow, curator of the First Thought Talk series. Pulitzer Prize nominee Dale Orlander Smith is a writer, performer, and theatre maker. In this episode, we'll hear about the experiences and ideas which inform her much praised works. Dale's conversation with Patrick Lonergan, Professor of Drama and Theatre Studies at NUI Galway, delves into the extensive interview process behind Until the Flood, her play about the 2014 shooting of black teenager Michael Brown by white police officer Darren Wilson. Profoundly resonant today, Until the Flood gives voice to a community haunted by injustice and a country yearning for change. Until the Flood and Dale Orlando Smith's First Thought Talk were presented as part of the July 2019 Galway International Arts Festival programme. Okay then. Um, well, good morning everybody and yeah, thanks a million for coming. It's great to see you all here on a rainy Sunday in Galway. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to talk about theatre and the, the personal, uh, also to talk about Dale's work and, and the play that she's been here performing all week um, until the flood. So I'm sure some of you have seen Until the Flood. Yeah, people are nodding. Some of you see it, yeah. Yeah, which yeah, is yeah. great. And perhaps uh, some of you might have seen Dale when she was here in 2006 for a show called The Gimmick, which was performed, I think, at the Town Hall Theatre, am I? I think, I think so, that, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a long yeah, time ago. It's a long time ago. Yeah, but look, it's, it's really great to have you here. Thank you're, you for having me. Yeah, you're welcome back to Galway. Thank um, you, thank you. So look, why don't we just maybe start talking about this play and then we can kind of branch out and see where we, we go. We'll, we'll have time later on for your own questions as well, so we can, we can have plenty of time um, for a good okay. chat. Okay. Yeah. So. so, okay, so this play, I mean, its origins, as Katrina was saying there a minute ago, 2014, Michael Brown, 18-year-olds. Wow. Yeah. Um, St. Louis... The city of St. Louis is one of the most segregated cities within the United States. The most segregated city in the United States, actually, believe it or not, is Milwaukee, Wisconsin. That's a whole different thing, but it's all within the Midwest. And what had happened was, with, between 2013 and between 2014, 100 some odd black men were pulled over and uh, given fines or something. Now, the city of uh, St. Louis is also divided. Let's say we're here in Galway and then, I don't, I don't know Galway very well, so let's say you go across the river, there's another mayor. Let's say you go into a shopping center, there's yet another mayor. So what people were doing was keeping the cities racially and ethnically divided, but they needed to bring money into those cities. Mm. So what they were doing specifically were targeting black men. And then when it was time for them to play, pay these fines, then like, let's say I say I give you a fine today. You don't, pay it to, you don't pay it today, you pay it tomorrow, so now that becomes $200, then it becomes $300. And then they were losing their jobs. So this is what was going on, and this is something that had been going on for a really long time. So there was a guy called Seth Gordon who worked in a theater and he, moved, he relocated, and he said, we wanna have a theater, write a theater piece, have you write this theater piece about Michael Brown who it'll be, Five years, August the 9th, 2014, when he was shot, because that really became the catalyst for all of it, where there was a huge explosion. And we want to get a sense of how we can use theater to help people communicate, you know, to create some sort of conversation. So what ended up happening was in 2015, less than a year, 
because it wasn't even August, right? Less than a year, I was asked to go down and I met with people. Good God, like within two, two or three days, I met with like 80, 80 people, you know. And I said, I want to get a sense of what this like, because it's, um, how does this shooting, and I didn't say the word murder, how does this shooting affect you? Where do you feel you are racially? And all of us, whether we care to admit it or not, that's also part of a different conversation, but also part of this. All of us within this room, whether we care to admit it or not, have bias within us. Everybody in this room has a racist and or a sexist or something within them. Uh, in those particular situations, it's by far worse. So how, do they, how does someone live on a day-to-day? -day? How do the three fingers point back at you? Where do you think you have to go? And I made it very clear that I am not a politician. And I also said that I am, these are composite figures. I sat actually down with Michael Brown Sr. himself and his current wife. I didn't want to use the woman that he had babies with, that being Michael, Michael Brown Jr. Because at that particular point, Hillary Clinton and Oprah Winfrey were all over her and she already had a book out and all of that. And I think, God forgive me, because again, I don't have a, children, a child, so I don't know what it's like to lose one, but there was something about her, and I realize what I'm saying is very strong, that was a bit of a media whore. So I didn't want to really like talk to her about anything, but I did want to get a sense of what this, what this was. I'm not taking any sides. For those of you who saw the play, I don't take sides. We just you know, look at it, how, you know, so how we feel. You spoke to about 80 people, I think. Is that right? Or? Yeah. Can I, so if, I mean, I know people, whether you're writers or researchers, there's the thing where you're kind of going there looking for information right from people, but mm -hmm. I mean, you know, do you take notes? And how do, you, how do you kind of keep your own, I suppose, distance from it or objectivity, or do you not have objectivity? I, I, no, I do. I have like, like, I, like I just said, I let everybody know that I said, I don't have the right to portray you. I said, but as someone on the planet, this also affects me. You know, I'm a person, I'm also black and female, I'm all, you know, so that also affects me as well, but also as a person on the planet. But I said, I, in terms of me invading your life that way, I said, so boundary, boundary is a word that I tend to use heavily. So I wanted to get a, just, just get that sense of, and yeah. yeah. Of how they, so, you, so you're doing these 80 interviews, okay? Mm -hmm. the, the play that we saw has a group of different characters right. in it. So, I mean, people who are, you know, drama students, or maybe people who go to the theater a lot would be familiar with a style called verbatim performance where people do interviews and then they put those real people on stage. So, for example, <clears throat> excuse me, after the LA riots, um, Anna Devere Smith. Yeah, Anna Devere Smith wrote a play called Twilight Los Angeles where she put people who she spoke to on stage. You, you didn't do that. You no. Did, yeah. So will you tell us about the, the kind of thinking behind I guess, that? I guess mine is a hybrid because, again, for those of you who are studying theater, it's about beginning, middle, end. It is about story, conflict, resolution. And for those of you who are writers, I mean, let's say, for instance, you're going to write a, a, I mean, it's been endless, right? Endless films about Marilyn Monroe or a James Dean or something like that. At what point do you take that information and you do a what if? Hmm. I mean, by that, what I mean is this. The, 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 the characters that I wrote, I mean, they, people did give me background because people were asking me, how did you choose those specific people? And I said, I thought the ones that really brought it home, you know, this hybrid between, okay, this is what's going on, but also them as characters. Hmm. What were the strongest character choices to make to bring this story to its, to its beginning, middle, end, story, conflict, resolution. So I do a thing called uh, character bio and character analysis, hmm. 
where I'll get information or I'll imagine the information given to the person I'm talking to, where they come from, who their family is, um, the education that they have, which gives me an instinct as to how they function in the world. And so it's, and then, and then I begin to write from that. And then also, yeah. Yeah, I mean, what really struck me about it is that, so these are eight different characters, you perform them all. I know this is something you've done throughout your career where, you know, right from the very beginning, your plays had lots of different voices that, mm -hmm. that you were presenting on stage yourself. Mm -hmm. Was that always a plan that you would also act as well as write? No, no? because okay. there was the, the, and I'm sure this happens here. Um, you know, I'll be 60 this year. And so I grew up uh, in the 70s, you know, like the 70s and the 80s. And for my physical type, there was no, um, the, the, I mean, you know, there was musicals and stuff like that, or I'm always some, because I was always a tall, big girl, I was always the one playing older characters. So I began to write for myself. Mm. And that kind of, and that, that, that's the way that evolved. But also the way this is written, mm. it could be multi-character, single character. That's, mm. that's specifically the way this character, you're not, you can see that, right? Yeah. Like, uh, that's the way I wrote this, in mm. any race and or gender. I thought one of the things, I mean, I can see that too, that you could you do it that it. way. Yeah, but, but I think the thing, there's something though uh, about the way that it's performed by one person that makes it feel, I suppose, uh, like it captures the sense that this is a, a community that's very confused, that's very conflicted about what happened, but that it, feel, it felt to me very, um, I guess, very honest in the kind of humanity that you're trying to capture, the people who are there. Well, I think you're hearing it through that, my quote-unquote individual voice, how I hear those people, yeah. and I guess as the actor, how that person, you know, individuates that. So, mm. but, I, but, but it can be done, I mean, I, th I think the strength of it can also be done where it's, where it's multi-characters as well. Yeah. So it opened in St. Louis, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, so that must have been... You know, it's interesting, because I, I, no one... As far as I know, I'm sure someone did, but no one, people in St. Louis were very, very friendly, but no one approached me about it because it was literally less than a year after that when that happened and no one came up to me and said anything, so I, I assumed that was okay. In fact, people were glad about it. It was other parts of the country, again, who were, they, they were receptive, but they wanted their own sense of justice at the expense of someone else's truth. Because mm -hmm. by that, what I mean is, only Darren Wilson knows what happened. That's the, that's the officer that shot him. <clears throat> what happened within those, those, those last moments. Now, there was a great article in the New York Times, and I forgot this writer's name, who talked about there were certain people who said Michael Brown reached for the gun first. Other people said no. And other people were told, you better change your testimony if you want to live. Wow. See, because also you've got, here we go, in terms of like characters and stuff, You've got the history of the racism that happened within that area. Then you've also got these two individual men who are in certain ways very similar. Yeah. By that, what I mean is, okay, Michael Brown, let's go with Darren Wilson, he's the elder one. Da Darren Wilson was born May 13th, 1986. Michael Brown was born May 20th, 1996. Mm -hmm. uh, Darren Wilson's mother, had him when she was 19 years old. Do you know the expression here, grifter? Yeah, somebody you know who's is? kind of hustling or... Yeah, yeah. yeah. she uh, would befriend someone in this room. She ran scams. Okay. She's dead. She was dead by the time she was 34 and she was working, she had her third or fourth husband. Hmm. And she would befriend you and then get into your house, 
get information off your computer and rob you blind. And she's bringing this boy from place to place to place. The last husband said, okay, I'm having a, you know, you have a, you have a little brother, but you're also a grown man. You're almost 18 years old. Time for you to go. Michael Brown's mother had him when she was 16, 17. Her mother had her when she was 16, 17. Brian, uh, uh, Michael Brown Sr.'s grandmother mother was about 16 or 17 when she had him. Uh, in her book, uh, the mother's name, Leslie McFadden, is, is Michael Brown's mother's name. She had shamed, uh, tell the truth, shame the devil. We got through, when I say we, the, the director and I, got through maybe five or six pages because she was saying, well, I tried to do this for Mike. We were going from place to place because Michael Brown Sr. was beating me and all of this. Never once was there any responsibility about what she did. Because yeah. I, I, so I couldn't put the, I, 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 I said, I can't read this. And um, she also had another family because she and Michael Brown Sr. broke up. Now, this is where, like, I guess the thinking in terms of the writer comes in, yeah? I would imagine, say, with Darren Wilson, by the time he's 18 and 19 years old, and he's going from place to place, that he used his mother as an example of what not to do mm. and became so straight-edged, because when you become a cop, that's pretty straight-edged. And uh, he didn't drink, he didn't do any of that stuff. So I, I think he took this road that was almost too straight where, where there was a severity to it. Michael Brown Jr., his, both his parents had uh, outside children. He and his mother were never, he, he and his, his father and his mother were never married. When I met Michael Brown Sr., he was legally married to the second wife and had a new family. There must have been a part of him that thought, now you straighten up Mm-hmm. You marry this woman, but you don't marry my mother. Mm-hmm. That must have caused some kind of inner conflict. Because mm-hmm. primarily the grandmother, the paternal grandmother was raising him. So in terms of like when you were asking me about how I approach characters, mm-hmm. I'm looking at the end result and going, how would someone respond to that set of circumstances? Mm-hmm. He was going to go to college. I mean, he, he had he a, was he had a destination college. and an ambition. And, I mean, you show, us did. A, you show us a character, a young man who who wants to go to Berkeley, but is worried he won't survive. That's another character. Yeah, another character in the play. Right. Um, I mean, is that, was that, would you say, would it be correct to say that character, Paul, I think, it gives us a sense of what might have been for Michael Brown, or is that too simplistic? I think it's too simplistic. Yeah. Because the Paul character did have both parents that were active and, 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 and very pro-him. Michael Brown did not have that. Remember his, I mean, when I interviewed Michael Brown Sr., this is what, say like now almost six years ago now, that man was maybe 42, 43 years old, so he was a very young parent. They both were young parents. And I'm also interested, you know, when, when I'm writing about this stuff, looking at generational abuse, generational neglect. So I, because I, I tend to think that background does play a role in terms of how the way people respond in the world. Yeah, I guess history as well. I mean, I loved the way you started out with somebody who's, who's seen it all before, I guess. Um, so the, the old lady? Yeah, yeah the mm-hmm. first character. So she, she talks about, um, what's that expression? Is it sun, sundown? Um, the sundown law. Yeah, yeah. So, so that sense that there was... And again, the sundown law was a law that was 
in the South where um, if you were of color and or Jewish, if you were in certain towns after dark, you would get beaten. You can come there during the day, you can clean house, you can do what you need to do, but mm-hmm. after, after, the, after the, the, the sun went down, you literally could not be there when night, when night fell. Otherwise, your life was in peril. Yeah. yeah. And I, so, I mean, I guess there's that sense of trying to locate, you know, this awfully tragic story of Michael Brown and trying to, I guess, do justice to his story, but at the same time showing that it's one story and that there are other stories that, that tell us the same kind sure. of thing. Sure, sure. Um, and so it's kind of seen, I mean, again, the, the title of this is Theatre and the Personal. I mean, is, is it true to say that that personal... What do you mean, Theatre and the Personal? This talk here that we're doing. Oh, <laughs> yeah. oh yeah. yeah. I think it's so, yeah. It's early, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I guess what I wanted to ask, you know, I mean, you read something in a newspaper. Like, we, we read about this in, in the news, read about it in social media, you see a news report, and that's one way of taking the information in. Mm-hmm. But to, to encounter these people who tell us from their personal perspectives, it's like a different kind of truth. It is. Um, So how do you, I mean, so you've got these eight characters then and they they all have these different truths. Mm -hmm. Was there ever a temp, I mean, again, one of the really striking things about it is you never feel that you as as a writer are standing in judgment and saying this person is the villain, this person is the hero. You can't, you cannot do that because again, as the writer, I have to find, and I think all of you have to do as well, if you don't love your characters, you have to understand them. Because if they're not, they will be caricatures. Yeah. You know, it's uh, uh, like one of my favorite actors, he passed recently, um, was a guy called Bruno Ganz. And he did, he did a great film called The Last Days, and this is Hitler in the Bunker. Oh, yeah. And he made him, and understand me how I say this to you, because this is not justified the killing of six million or more people. He made him an empathetic character. And the reason why that, and this was about Hitler's last days in the bunker. The reason why that film was so great and his performance was so great is because we understood how the way this man thought. We did not have to like it, we're not supposed to like it, but we understood how pathetic he was. Yeah? Mm. You, ha- you have to have an understanding. You know, people aren't born monsters. Which you address really interestingly in the play where there's that scene of the child who, who doesn't know the racial slurs, doesn't know to be frightened, and is taught That's right. by the parents. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, that, that kind of sense, and this is true, I think, for a lot of your plays, is the, the feeling of people being trapped. You know, I use different things. Um, like, what, I think a book that I think that's imperative is a book called Drama of the Gifted Child written by Alice Miller. Mm. You're nodding, you know the book. That talks about how the way childhood affects us. And I, and I really do believe that. I believe, you know, uh, again, this is in every case, but I think sometimes there are certain people on the planet who have children who should not have children. Mm-hmm. I think in Michael Brown's case, it should not have happened. Mm. Um, I mean, here we go, this is insane. When we were down there, because I was in St. Louis doing the play, the, his mother and the paternal grandmother got into a fist fight. The reason why they got into this fist fight was because grandma was selling merchandise, Michael Brown t-shirts. Wow. That gives you insight as to how this kid was raised. How the way, Michael Brown Sr. was raised. Now, when I met Michael Brown Sr. with his current wife, 
I saw a man who realized, he didn't say this, but again, just who realized that he could have been a better parent. This does not justify the killing of his son, not by or shooting of his son. It does not justify that at all. But there was in him, there was a man who was trying to fight to keep his sanity, but there was also a man I was aware of who realized he could have given more because the, the, the second family that he had, this wife, for those of you who saw the play, she did say, he's not my son, but I love my biological son, but I love him. This was a very calm, seemingly sedate woman. So I saw him where he was trying to really reconcile, come to terms, yeah, he was trying to reconcile what he was done, trying to come to terms with what he did as a father. But I guess in a sense, it's, it's too yeah. late. Yeah, yeah, and it's not what he said, it's the way he said things. It was the subtextual that I was really uh, acutely aware of. Mm. And uh, I mean, I think that's, you know, in, in Ireland sometimes, especially when we think about theatre literature, we talk about the impact of colonialism and how colonialism in Ireland produced kind of, uh, produced a people who had self-hatred. Mm-hmm. And the self-hatred is manifested through things like alcoholism, um, through, through a kind of almost an embracing of poverty mm-hmm. um, and, and it, I suppose that feeling of being trapped. And again, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that's our <laughs> history in a nutshell or anything like that. I'm just saying that's an analysis. No, no, that's, but, I think, but I think that's yeah. true of every group of people. Yeah. And again, because one of the, 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 the legacies, that's a word that I use in the play, one of the legacies of any kind of abuse or, uh, or and whether it be sociopolitical or, and or personal is that you've been made to feel that you're supposed to stay in one place. In other words, if you're not a drunk, therefore you're not Irish. You're trying to be posh. Or if any group of people who try to, like, say, go above their station and live well mm-hmm. and reinvent themselves, you've been told, oh, you're, you're not one of us anymore. And that's what happens is because the people absorb this self-hatred and they're not even realizing that they're doing it. And that's, that's exactly what the people who oppress you want you to think. Mm-hmm. To keep your place. Don't try, don't, don't try to be a citizen of the world. Who do you think you are? Mm. Mm. And, you know, and it's funny because kids who can, in, in, you know, in, in New York in the late 80s and the early 90s, I live, I live in the East Village, Lower East Side, so, which doesn't mean a damn thing to some of you. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, where it is, that's considered like, you know, that's, that those, you know, CBGBs, yeah? Ramones and all of that, you know? And then, and, uh, so a lot of kids were coming over from Ireland. Mm. And um, they were talking about how the way, when, no matter where they came from, now the East Village is not that great. I mean, it's, again, for those of you who don't see New York or don't see the world, that's, that's, that's you're keeping yourself ignorant. See the world, okay? But the flip of that was certain kids were coming from small towns and they were saying, oh, people were saying to them, who do you think you are trying to go to New York and all of that precious New York? Yeah. And they go, this, and they said, they, we're just living here trying, trying to do stuff. And we were talking about how the legacy of that was, mm. you know, in terms of them wanting to see other things and have, have, have access yeah. to a different way of living. That within itself, the fact, what is, it, what is it that Rilke says, the questions themselves are golden, right? And, you know, led us to a young pope. But the fact that someone is questioning, you know, because there are a lot of people who want to kill the fact that you question because they themselves are so bitter. One of my favorite writers... James Baldwin, that he was asked, why did he leave Harlem? Because again, he left Harlem because of oppression, but also he had a curiosity about the world. And he said, people who are so bitter, so blinded, who cease to question, have made peace with defeat. Wow. 
Wow, that's very powerful. Yeah, I mean, Baldwin, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because one, I think maybe it's Beauty's Daughter. There's a line where somebody is told, um, you know, you might have left Harlem, but you'll always be, you know, you'll always be kind of trapped there in some ways, where there's that sense of people always trying to kind of pull you back into into the thing that you've mm-hmm. escaped from, whether yeah. it's an individual or in any other but way. But also you represent a threat to people when you question. Yeah. Because those people have like made, the, they have made peace with defeat. So, I mean, thinking about a play like this, you know, there, there might be a temptation for a different writer to come at this and say, let's try and make everybody feel a sense of reconciliation and optimism. And stuff. You know, but that, that would be totally dishonest. No, I mean, I think there's certain kinds of work, you know, be it painting or be it literature or theater where you you have to come in with an open heart mm. you know i mean it's like like someone was saying to me well what do you what message i am not here to give you a message who the hell am i to give you messages mm. i mean my job as a as a theater worker is to like do it as as concise and informative as I can. I can give you that information, either you take that information or you don't. These people who hold themselves up as, as, as um, oh, you know, examples or this positive, positive role model. I'm not your mother. Yeah. No, I'm serious, you know what I mean? I'm not, I'm not your parent. That is for you to do. That is for your parents to do. Mm-hmm. And then also either you take the information or you don't, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, hopefully it's a leeway to stuff. But for somebody to tell you what you need to do or how to think, it's one of the most patronizing things. It's like you, I mean, I don't know whether you guys over here read about Bill Cosby, right? You know, Bill? So we know Bill Cosby, the comedian who has been uh, charged and found guilty of um, a series of crimes related to sexual assault, rape, mm-hmm. and so on. But yet he was, I mean, within the States and within the black community, it's like, you know, people were saying, oh no, he's so great. It's like you couldn't knock him for anything. And then he said, what, he was always telling people what you need to do, what you should do. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, he is, what, in his 80s mm-hmm. and in jail for the rest of his life. Yeah. Isn't this the thing as well, though, that the, the speed with which people get labeled with things, you know, mm-hmm. so that Bill Cosby is seen as this, this role model as right. well. And, you know, we, we talked earlier about this as well, the way in which playwrights, you know, James Baldwin isn't seen as, as a great American writer. He's seen as a great African-American writer by, by some people. And he's, I this, think, I think, but I think he's managed to, I mean, yeah, this he's is a great point. writer. Yeah. yeah, this is my point is that we're, you know, the, the, I mean, labels should be there. Like we had this a lot in Ireland with the Waking the Feminists movement, for example, mm. where people were saying we need to give visibility and more importantly work mm-hmm. to female playwrights. Mm-hmm. But then there was also kind of evidence that in using the term female playwrights, we're trying to limit people. Um, we're trying to kind of say, you know, this is, uh, this is not, you're not a playwright, you're a female playwright. Jeez. And I've spoken to a lot of female dramatists who, yeah. who re- re- reject that kind of label because they feel like it's, as you're saying, it's patronizing. It's too But also we're in a funny time where we're learning different language. I mean, we're using words like they, mm-hmm. you know, and stuff like that. And what's happening is when again, and, and this is going to happen, like in ten, five to 10 years from now, it'll be cool. But right now we're in a time where people, and this is happening on this side of the, uh, the water as well, where people are writing plays where they feel that they have to represent because they have, so you know, you're having like a lot of trans plays, you're having like a lot of plays about, uh, you, know, you know, political stuff. Like there's lots of things I do write, and you know, like, like a play that I would, I'm, I've been doing this play for three years. I would love to do my, the, you know, the play forever more so, but because of the, the socio-political climate, people want to reach for that. So mm. there's a lot of people writing political stuff right now, 
But it's important, anybody who's been ostracized or whatever it is, that you don't take on the very bias that's been done onto you. You can be transgender or whatever you are, and you can write about, you know, Led Zeppelin. I'm just coming up with all these ideas. You can write all kinds of things. Because if you keep doing that kind of, or if, you're, if one is of color, you don't have to simply write about race. Because mm. if you continue to do that, you're playing into the very bias that's helped to oppress you. If you're a woman, you don't have to simply write about, you know, what it's like to be a woman and, you know, uh, you know, being angry with men and all of that. You know, I mean, it doesn't have to necessarily just be limited to that. Mm. You know, because even when we talk about the Me Too movement, a couple of people got mad at me because I said, I know a couple of women that need to be on that list. Mm. <laughs> Because there's something that's hypocritical that happens. There's a guy called uh, Richard Gardner who wrote a book called Boys Betrayed. And I make a link between this because some years ago I wrote a play called Black and Blue Boys, Broken Men that dealt with men who've been abused. And one of the people that abused them was his mother. Mm. You look at plays like Tea and Sympathy, films like Summer of 42, um, even a play like The Reader or uh, what's the one that Zoe Heller wrote um, that was done with Kate, Kate, Kate Blanchett? Oh, she was yeah, the Notes from a Scandal. Notes from a Scandal, she's right? she's a school teacher okay. who, uh, who, who has a relationship with exactly. one of her people. Yeah. Now, the book, I mean, obviously a book is always going to be stronger anyway. Mm. If that, a female quote-unquote predator, because we don't like to look at that, right? She was made sympathetic if you saw that movie. Mm. She's attractive. She's married to a man who's much older. She has a Down syndrome child and she does one year in jail. If that was a man, that would not have happened. Mm. Um, tea and sympathy, when you have an, uh, an older woman and a young boy, it gets called initiation. When, it's, when you have an older man and a young girl, it gets called molestation, or, an, or now a young boy gets called molestation. So we don't like to look at those things that way. Um, the film, the, 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 that stupid song, Stevie Nicks 17, about this older woman and a young boy, again, that becomes a rite of passage. Yeah, yeah so again, it's the double standard. There's a double yeah. standard. So again, like hopefully what happens with your generation as things are being reorganized and disorganized and then rebuilt, yeah, we, we, we put all that stuff in that we write about those things. But yeah. we're in a funny time where we can't write about it because, I mean, I've had a lot of women get mad at me about that. Yeah, I mean, this I don't is... care because I'm not going to stop. Yeah. It's, but I, I guess I'm curious about this uh, in terms of like thinking about your, your writing over, over a long span mm. is that, it, again, I used the word earlier, honesty. And would it be true to say that as a writer, you, you know, the desire to tell the truth is one of the primary motivations for you. Telling many truths. Okay. So it's the Because you know, like for instance, like using like until the flood, right? There were people who I spoke with, this is the way they lived. They were this this these were their core values in terms of where they came from. And there's there's one woman who just could not take in the brutality of, 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 those, those, those shoot, of that shooting yeah. and of the way she lived. Hmm. Because if she took it the way she lived, given who she was at the particular time, and I know this sounds very vague, it would have destroyed her. Hmm. I mean, her whole life has been built upon a certain kind of illusion and delusion. And to talk to her and say, no, 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 I don't have the right to do that if that makes any sense, because she's, I, I'm talking to this woman for an hour, 
and I'm watching her body language and the whole thing. And I could have gone in and said, you know, what you're talking about is very screwed up. But she was so fragile. Mm. Like her whole life was being questioned in certain ways. Mm. And I'm not a therapist. That means if I break you down that way or anyone breaks another human being down, you have to be prepared to build them back up. That's not my job. Mm. So that's what I meant by the word boundary as well. Mm. Yeah. When you, when you went to write the play then, I mean, was there... I, that, again, that need for distance from the people. How did you compose those individual characters? Was that, was that something you were doing? I kind of went with my gut in terms of what I thought were the strongest stories. Okay. And that's, and that's what I did, yeah. I was curious about, I mean, so the play is called Until the Flood, and that's, uh, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but that's taken from the gospel. Um, well, part of it is, part of it, I mean, part of it is religious, but also okay. it's, yeah, yeah, Noah's Ark, right? And then also it's like, it's near, they're near the, you know, St. Louis is near the Mississippi River. Right. And so also, again, using every, I mean, in every genre of religion, water is the cleansing. Yeah. So that's where that came from. I guess, I mean, in the Bible, does that, I, the line is something like about how one man is taken and one man is saved. One woman is taken, mm-hmm. one woman is saved. Exactly. And was that allowing you to think about these two young men or is that? Again? Yes and no. Okay. I mean, yes and no. I mean, I... I'm all over the place, but yes, yeah, that, that's yeah. a very good. That's, that's yeah, that's part of it. Yes. Thinking about your earlier work again, I mean, so I'm again interested in just the thing about boundaries. Okay, so one of the things that's often written about your work is that it's autobiographical, or that it's yeah. But yes and no. I mean, well, everybody's I mean work the, is autobiographical yeah. in the sense that it gives you an insight as to how someone thinks. Mm. Now, forever, the place that's a memoir piece that I did in fact write about my how the way my mother introduced me to work and uh, the relationship based upon her. You know, you can know somebody all your life but not know them. Huh. And it's also that. important that I write her as a person because just because she's my mother doesn't mean that she didn't have an inner life. Mm-hmm. So I, have, I look at her as a person and as a character, not simply as my mother, but as a young girl who was very sensitive and as a woman who grew into a very complicated, funny, brutal, cruel, sad person. Mm. Who says that? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Don't cry. Yeah. Did you, no, did, I mean, it just felt so true. You know, so yeah, yeah. It's but it's a thing, I mean, that's... Yeah, yeah. You know, but you have to. It's like, even like I'm saying, it's like when I was talking about the, 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 you know, the Hitler reference, mm. like, here we go. If I were to write, say, about a Hitler, right? You'd have to look at, again, like his background. I mean, he was abused as a kid. Mm. His father beat him from the time he was born to the time he was 14 years old. He was an aspiring painter uh, and was not very good at it, according to what, you know. But can you imagine, like, you know, you, you, just, you don't know when you're going to get hit. You don't know what's going to happen. So yeah. this, this gives me, if I were to write about him, I would have to look at that background. Mm-hmm. When I look at my mother, I mean, again, there's a lot of stuff that she didn't tell me. I know that she was born in 1921 in a segregated South. Mm-hmm. The books that she introduced me to, it was very weird because somebody would ask me one time, they said, well, how did you read James Baldwin? How did you read, you know, uh, Dickens? And I said, no, nah, man, I found it on my own. It's like, no, it was actually in my house. Mm-hmm. So the importance uh-huh. of the mother. Yeah. Yeah. I, this reminds me, I read an interview, I think, that you gave a few years ago where you talked about seeing Death of a Salesman with... Um, Dennehy. Dennehy, yeah. And you saw two men in the audience. Okay. 
this is what I mean in terms of theater and people taking something and individuating it or like the power of theater opposed to people because like right now the whole political thing beating people across the head with messages, right? So I'm in New York, New York, you could tell I'm a New Yorker, right? New York. <laughs> and I'm watching Brian Dennehy uh, do Willie Loman, right? And there was a Hasidic Jew and a Hindu man sitting in front of me. And so intermission comes, said, and then they're, they're, they're kind of looking at each other. I'm like, oh. So at the end of Death of a Salesman, they both turned to each other and they said, that was my father. And they went out and so the Hindu guy said, you want to have uh, a coffee or a tea? The man said, no, how about we have martinis? And they went and, went, <laughs> and they went and they went and they talked about the play. And that's what good theater does. Yeah. Opposed to someone feeling that we have to like show this one and show that one and let everybody know that, you know, we're angry. It's just, okay, so what? I don't care. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you show me your anger through your characters, Show me your, your, you know, your, 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 your anger through your language. But if you're just going to, if, if it's a barrage of stuff, I don't want to hear that. That's not, what I, that's not what I came here for. That's not what you came here for, you know? A lot of your plays have poetry uh, in them, and they're, they're, you know, often you can kind of read them like that almost. But one of the other things that's really powerful about the work is the kind of stage language and how you use space mm-hmm. on stage. So there's a stage direction, I think it must be in Yellow Man, where it says something like um, that the musicality of the piece is based on the emptiness of the stage or something. Do you know the thing I'm talking about? Um, yeah. So just about that, when you're, when you're thinking, you know, you put like, uh, you, you know, you have the commemorative stuff on stage for, the, mm-hmm. um, for Until the Flood. Could you just say something about how you, how you get these words up on their feet and how you think about, you know, maybe do you design a set or do you just not, not do any of that? Mm-mm. I mean, I think there's a power within a certain kind of silence mm-hmm. where that can be so full that we get it. And I try to put that on a page. And it's also, again, it's kind of my own language that happens because I might, like there was one character I was thinking of, um, I, I, a painting will come to me. And I was, remember also, it's, it's very complicated, we can't get all of it, but it's a, I remember like using Ziggy Stardust as, as, a, as a, a reference, because I'm a huge Bowie fan. So it's, 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 it becomes eclectic, but I love when there's a sense of space and time and how the way that person can explore that and, and use the power within that. Mm. I mean, I also, you, you know, during the play that I saw on Friday night, one of the characters, Ruben, is kind of sweeping, and I noticed that there was a guy who had long legs, he kind of had to, you know, yeah. move well, out of the way. Yeah. So there's something there about the kind of liveness of the thing as well. I mean, do you, do you find yourself uh, having to do that kind of thing often in performance? No, or? no. And also, again, it's, you know, what's happened, because again, it's, I, to, me, I, to me, I write all kinds of theater. It just so happens that this, there's a few of them that are one-handers, but there's other that can be done other people. Sometimes, not everybody, certain people who write one-person plays and they direct themselves and they, they can fall into some very bad habits. Yeah. And it becomes very indulgent. That's what I was wondering, because you know how so many writers get chucked out of the rehearsal oh, room um, you know, and told, we need to lock this down. That's right. So no, like that kind of thing, no, it, just, yeah. it was just, it I know, kind of happened. Yeah. No, but, but no, I don't, I, I don't go away from the script at all. I try not to do that, no. So it, it, there must be a moment then where you're saying, okay, it's locked down now, I'm not going to change it. Yeah, I mean, but they'll, like, the, but they'll also, they'll, they'll sometimes things like happen within an audience that it's really... 
yeah. you know, can throw you. Like when I was doing, when I was doing the play in Portland, Oregon, a guy was snoring. <laughs> so I had to stop. Hey, yo, <laughs> wake up, you know. So that kind of thing. He was looking up at me, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know so that kind of, you know. Then I, you know. Uh, yeah. Men always think it's not them who's snoring as well. Let's I mean, he was, I mean, I was like, what the hell is this? Yeah. And then I went over and he said, hey. <laughs> yeah. And then he woke up, I'm like this. I look like the Antichrist looking down at this man. Yeah. You know, and so it, um, yeah, something like that. But in terms of like people calling themselves like ad-libbing or, or I, I despise that. I okay. despise it. So that's, I suppose, what I'm, I guess I'm talking about is that for, for many people who write for theater, they, they feel that the script is something that can be in flux more or less indefinitely. Um, and there's, you know, for I've all writers, we have that kind I've of got, like when I've got yeah. really, I've, you know, I really, I, for me personally, no. I mean, I think you, I mean, you need that as a center. And also, again, depending, there's, there's the writer in me also thinking about the language on the page and how that really takes away from that. Mm. You know, like one thing I saw, and he was spot on. I went to go see uh, Grief is the Thing with Feathers. Paul Fay, he got me some great tickets. And Killian Murphy, I mean, I'm, I'm, I didn't care about him. I mean, I'm not, he is a good actor. I mean, I didn't, I've, I've seen him mostly in film and stuff like that. It's my first time seeing him on stage. I went, I didn't know this man had this kind of power. And I read that, I read, because I, I, my, my memory's very good about what's on the page. He stuck to every word. Yeah. It's a, I mean, the novel is like about... And I love the way it looks on the page because yeah. it's really a hybrid between novel and play. It's phenomenal. I went, oh my God. And I remembered it. Yeah. Because, I mean, the writing was so gorgeous. Mm. And Enda Walsh did a great job with that, you know? And, but I, to take... To, one word would have totally screwed... If he screwed up one word, it would have totally altered what that piece was about. It was gone, yeah. Yeah, it, was, it would have been gone. Yeah, but again, there's that kind of vulnerability of being the person on stage who has to keep these, these words going as well. Yeah. yeah. Well, see, sometimes with certain... And I, I was talking to somebody about this. With certain theater that's experimental, and I'm sure you have this here, and I was asking Paul about this, was that sometimes you'll get people who think if they are... If they ad-lib, if they don't even have it written... I'm serious, if they, oh, I have this great idea. No, no, you write this. That somehow you're being avant-garde. You're not being avant-garde, you're being sloppy. Lazy, yeah. Yeah, but that's also, all it is, yeah. that's all it is. Yeah, know? because it's, it's more of a risk to actually write it down oh, and have the courage of your convictions. That's, yeah. Yeah, there was, I can't call this person's name, <laughs> but there's a certain performer, or there's a few of them I know. I was doing a tour with this person and the show, which was, it was great. An hour 15, but then this person, it was a, a one-hander, then they started ad-libbing, 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 ad-libbing. The show that was 115 went to 245. Wow. The audience rushed to go to the bathroom, right? Because, you know, there was no, you know. And I'm like, that is, it, it, it was so ruined, but because that person was playing off what they thought a look was, or they saw somebody, or they were, you know, and that it totally took away from why, why we were there, why the audience was there. Yeah, it's forgetting about the audience. It's, yeah. it's nearly time to, to go out for questions or, or comments, so if you, if you have one kind of bubbling away in your mind, you can take a second to gather your thoughts. But one thing I did just want to come back to, um, it's Please. music, um, and the importance of music. You talked about Bowie. 
yeah. minutes ago. But like here at the end of the play, we had Give Me Shelter by the Rolling Stones. And I've seen your plays like Lou Reed and Suzanne Vega. And I think you just wrote something as well about Billie Holiday. Is that, or did I get that wrong? There is, oh, I see what you, yeah, there's, there's a piece, well, not, not per se, but there's a okay. piece called Herman and Billy about, yeah. it's, it's a, yeah. It's another, but music. I mean, yeah, music that's, totally. That's, yeah, I, I, I'm a frustrated wannabe rock and roller. <laughs> And so, but music always plays, I mean, I literally hear music a lot of the time when I'm writing. Yeah. You know, I mean, like right now I'm listening to, um, I've gotten, you know, I'm re- re- listening to a lot of Coltrane right now and, uh, and uh, Brian Jonestown Massacre. Mm-hmm. Um, Did I read somewhere? Black you... Angels, they're good. Sorry for couldn't. That's all right, no. Yeah. Uh, Phil Lennis. Yeah, man. <laughs> I, I read somewhere you wanted to write something about him. Is that true? I, that's true. Okay. Uh, when he was in New York at the Beacon Theater, I remember he was playing uh, Dancing in the Moonlight. Wow. And he was playing. And he saw me, because I mean, again, you know, he's mixed race and all the whole thing, but he looked down at me, I looked at him, yeah, man, yeah, you know, and he was just kind of <laughs> like, and it was just a moment that we had. And, and then, I, then I began to read about him, because like, I mean, it's not such a quote unquote big deal maybe here or in Europe, but in the States, you know, being black and listening to rock and roll, I caught a lot of hell, you know, within the black community. And also, a lot of times, white people didn't know what to do with that either. You know, and it's like, oh, you know. And I grew up in the era where disco was, although disco is, resur- there's a resurgence of it, you know, here. Mm-hmm. But disco, if you were into disco versing, if you were into rock and roll, there was a riff. It's kind of like, I guess the equivalent would be like mods and rockers in the 60s mm-hmm. and the early 70s, right? Uh, you know, so that, that it was, so it was, when I saw him, I went, oh my God. You know, this was this, but also liking the band a lot because I also like Medjur, who was with Ultravox, and mm. I could go on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it'd be very cool if you did write something about Phil. Lemon. Yeah, I mean, I know somebody was trying to, but it's just, and I know his mom just recently passed, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Um, would anybody like to come in with a question or a or comment? comment? Yeah. yeah, we have uh, we have a mic coming towards you as well. So if you want to just um, just hear in the... Yeah, my, yeah. my apologies, by the way. My origins are in Portland, Oregon, and I. Really sorry about that experience you, you had. Did you, it wasn't you, was it? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. You know, I would like to ask you a little bit more about your technique, your method. And I wonder if you would, now you can say, I don't want to get into this, but would you take one character in particular, for example, the barber, and give me a little bit more specifics about, was there a barber? How, how much of what your character, the barber, says on stage did an actual barber say to you? I mean, where, where do you, I kind of like to know a little bit more of the line between. I never, I never met the barber, I saw the barber, who was like, a, somebody pointed him out and said we all go to him because he's like a wise man. And like when you, for some strange reason with barbershops, and again, like I say in the play, barbershops and beauty parlors, those are places where for some strange reason, and bars, where people tell you their life stories. You're in a chair, oh, let me tell you what happened, man. You know, that, 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 that. And so I wanted to use him, and also stories are told in, in barbershops. And there was this, this man who in fact did own this barbershop, who did in fact, who, who, who was a college grad and did all of that stuff. So I looked at him and I heard about him and that's where the story came from. And then again, again, I would get a sense of him being this, 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 this. He, he was about seventy-five, and I thought, okay, he went to he went to college. He came back here, 
I, he's working on his own. He has his own business. And I began to do, like, I guess the Stanislavski and Magic If. Mm. And then just write what I, because I do this thing, bio, the bio, then I do the, the, the um, a thing called character analysis. This is just something that I do on my own. I guess maybe I took a look from Joe Chaikin a little bit, Presence of the Actor, where I, what did he have for breakfast? What does he have for breakfast? Where does he live? Uh, does, is he married? Uh, does he have children? Does, you know, how much education did he have? How does he respond? How does he feel about his life? How the way, so that's literally the way I work. Are you doing that on your feet? Or are you doing it on the page? I'm doing it on my page and on, on my feet. It's two together. Yeah. So it's always good. That's, yeah. that's literally how the way I, I, I personally work. Very good. Yeah. Uh, did, I, did I answer that as much as I possibly can? Yeah. I, so, were there two girls that came down to ask? Yeah, there were a lot of people that came down and they were trying to do this romantic thing about, you know, because people were telling me about that. And actually there were two women who said, well, I want to work with you on this because I think, you know, as powerful women, I'm like, oh, God, leave me alone. <laughs> my face. These are the two university students oh, who are doing research. Oh, my yeah. 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 You know, they were trying so hard to prove this point. Again, yeah. there's, I hear what I'm saying to you. There is nothing wrong with being political. I mean, people are, there are a lot of people who are overtly political, but sometimes you also have th what I call thrill junkies yeah. who really just want to jump on something, and they're not looking at the, you know, the extended picture. I mean, I know people who are political activists, and they, they have a healthy sense. They really do want to contribute. Mm. But they also don't want to be, these, these girls were like, you know, they, they wanted to be media whores. This is going to somehow, we're going to get this in the papers. And it's just like, okay, do you really want to do this? Or do you want to become famous from this? And I'm kind of yeah. looking subtextually with these two women, what was going on. I mean, I guess it's such so, a difficult balancing act. You know, with climate change, Donald Trump, Boris Johnson, people feel very uh, helpless. So, you know, I, I think a lot of this is people just trying to feel like they're making a difference and sometimes they, they, they lose sight, don't they, yeah. of the people who they're actually trying, trying to supposedly yeah. Uh, help yeah. sometimes, yeah. maybe. Um, would anybody else like to come in with a question or a comment? Yes, over here. Hello. If you just want to hang on for the mic, sorry. Um, yeah. Thank Hello. you. Um, Hi, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Good. I think this might be a question about boundaries, but I wanted to ask how you look after yourself. Going around doing these performances and then... I try to, you know, I mean, I go to a gym like three or four times and I try to practice meditation. Um, I, actually, I do, but I say to you because a friend of mine, a friend of mine who's, you know, because I, I, I'm kind of, and don't take this the wrong way, I'm a recovering Catholic. And <laughs> I think we're familiar with that. Yeah, you. <laughs> and so, like, I kind of lean toward Eastern thought. Right. So I kind of do that, you know, when I can. And um, yeah, I, I do try to take care as much as I can. And sometimes, yeah, it's 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 hard. I mean, I'm not saying that it isn't. You know, uh, it it is. And that's a great question. Thank you for answering that. Yeah. And also, I like red wine. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Anyone? Yeah, just behind you there. Thank you. Thank you so much. We saw the performance yesterday. It was fantastic. Oh, thank, you. thank you very much. Um, I'm having a question about, um, you said you performed it in St. Louis soon after the Michael Brown shooting. And now it's six years later and you're performing five, it. Yeah, f yeah, six years later. It'll be, August 9th is five years. 
will be five years for him. Okay. Since the shooting, yeah. Since okay. the shooting. Okay, sorry, yeah. five. And I'm just wondering about the reception from the audience in, in different parts of the, the I was country. thinking back in the States, as time has gone by, you know, is it a different response? You know, because Ferguson blew up with, sure. you know, the riots and the But also since Black Ferguson, Lives if you remember, there were shootings after that. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so it's, in certain ways, people feel it's even more relevant, in certain ways it's more relevant now because there was a guy, because um, uh, there's so many at this point, because yep. uh, last year I was in Milwaukee doing it and there was the young man who was in California who got shot in his own yard. Mm -hmm. Stefan Clark. Yeah. In his grandmother's yard. At his grandmother's yard. Yeah. Yeah, I just wondered, in, in St. Louis in particular, if you've gone back to do it again and how community might have changed because that, that incident was so particular to there mm -hmm. and how... I haven't gone back. I haven't gone back. Okay. Could I maybe, I suppose, extend that question on a bit because I was interested in this too. I mean, I, I know a lot of theater people I know have talked about before and after Trump as a kind of a, a watershed moment as well for some of their work changing its meaning. Yeah. But I was curious... Like in, in one sense, when it's on in Galway, I think people are there to learn and to, you know, we're aware of what's happening in the United States, but it's not the same uh, as if you live there, okay? Mm. But at the same time, I think there is perhaps a risk sometimes of a complacency in Ireland where the kind of racial profiling that is referenced in your play, you know, cross the border on a bus from Northern Ireland into the Republic, and there is racial profiling happening mm -hmm. there of the passengers. Well, there's uh, a young man who... Uh, his name is Malik, who, was, who worked at the Druid yesterday, you know, after we closed the show. He's Nigerian. And he was saying that he gets profiled here. He lives, he, is, he was born and raised in Galway. And how within the past three weeks, he's been stopped. Uh, his father is a, 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 a cab driver. And his cab, and, and the father, uh, you know, had some drunken people in his cab and said, they, I'm not going to pay you. Mm -hmm. And when he went to go complain about it, the cop said, okay, you know, you need to stop yelling and just, we'll try to take care of this, but you're yelling a little too loud. Malik told me this yesterday. He saw the play and he said he, it happens, it, or he, when he's walking with friends sometimes, it happens to him mm -hmm. fairly often and he is from here. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there's, you know, we've things to learn and it's not just about yeah, countries. and also, I mean, now, you know, Galway is now becoming, you know, slowly becoming an international city, as is Dublin. And so, um, I've, in, in the hotel I was staying in, like, Polish women were telling me how the way sometimes they get profiled. Really? And Brazilian, and Brazilian women sometimes get, you know, they were telling me how the way sometimes they get profiled. Mm -hmm. So, there, there is no, like, I, I keep saying, there is no utopia, because if there were, we'd all be there, right? Thank you for listening to First Thought. For more First Thought talks, visit the talk section on Galway International Arts Festival's website on giaf.ie.